I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, Dave Kittle here. Welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. I am the practice owner at Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners in regards to partnering or acquiring some or all of their practice. And today we have an awesome guest on the show. Today we have Andre Uyoa, a partner and executive advisor at MA Healthcare Advisors. You can check them out online at mahealthcareadvisors.com. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about your practice. We're going to talk about advisory. We're going to talk about macroeconomic trends, how some of those things may or may not affect you in your practice in regards to selling some or all of it. So let's get into it. Andre, welcome on. Hey, thanks, Dave. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity to to get on here and speak to your guests and and just uh, to riff with each other on the state of M&A today. For sure. So Andre, you're based in California and you're part of M&A Healthcare Advisors. So just give us a brief background on yourself and the firm. Sure. So we founded M&A Healthcare Advisors a few years ago uh, with my partners, uh, Mike Moran and Mark Thomas. And the idea behind it was that we weren't seeing lower middle market representation of healthcare services businesses in a way that was sophisticated enough and really provided the benefit to the sellers that other larger companies were getting through bigger investment banks uh, and advisory firms. So really our, our motto is to take the you know these complicated concepts, distill them down and provide bulge bracket uh, level service. So bulge bracket being the larger investment banks you've heard about there and bring it down into the smaller business community so we could get these business owners to a successful transaction. You know, and, and a lot of the times the challenge for us is that we provide a tremendous amount of sophistication. We believe that we provide excellence. And sometimes the folks that we represent don't know the difference because they just haven't been through this process before, but we know the difference. And for us being excellent and being great representatives of our clients, it's just much more fun than uh, being mediocre and being a finder in this world. So that's awesome. If there's any practice owners or physicians, physical therapy practice owners listening, how do you define lower middle market? Is that practices that are doing in terms of revenue or uh, practice valuation in the range of like a million to 20 million or a million to 50 million? Like what's lower middle market just for context? You know, it's, it's funny, Dave, because we have all these schnazzy terms and you'll hear them come out of my mouth just because it's part of the lexicon of what we do. But we try to do this all the time is just say, okay, look, there's a term let's just simplify it, right? Lower middle market is just really, it's a way of saying small business. I think if they came up with that term, you can say that, well, there's mid market and there's large cap and there's all these different types of strata within the you know, economics and, and the types and the size of businesses. But really it's a small business 
And it represents probably in the healthcare services arena, represents businesses that do somewhere between 2 million of revenue all the way up to about 100 million of revenue. And remember, revenue is not all, it's not created equal. So the people that there's some businesses that get sales in and they might make a 30% margin in the world we live in, or there might be pharmacies that we represent that have a 2% margin. So ultimately what that comes down to is a term we use as well called EBITDA, which you know we can get into, but essentially it's it's a proxy for cash flow in the business, similar to your net income, but the difference is that net income is really used to define your tax liability. And so you want that number to be lower. We want to push EBITDA based on the actual money that you put in your pocket from the business. And so EBITDA levels in the lower middle market might range from, you know, really on the low, low side, I'd say 500,000 and on the higher side, about 10 million. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. And uh, we spoke a little bit earlier, you and your firm, specifically your role where you are like a facilitator between the seller and the right buyer or finding the right buyer. So we're going to get into a little bit of that about how you kind of facilitate that whole process. One of the things you mentioned is for a practice owner, once they get a valuation of their practice, or maybe if they have an idea of how much it's worth or comparables in the market, how should they move forward? Once they get that, they get to that point, maybe they have an independent business appraisal. Maybe you guys perform the valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that is identified. They understand the price range or an asking price, and they're about to go to market or you're going to take them to market. How should sellers move forward at that point? You know, very few people, when they get to the point where they say, I feel like maybe there's an opportunity here to sell my business, actually, you know, move on that inclination, right? Many people wait until the point at which, not that it's too late, but they've just gotten farther away from that initial thought, right? So it depends sort of where they are in that timeline. But let's say somebody wakes up one morning, they've been running their business for 30 years, and they say, I just want to see what my business is worth, right? Well, we can do that. The challenge is, again, being in the lower middle market is that these are private companies. We don't have that information in publicly traded websites or you know information that's out there in terms of what you can find on the NASDAQ, right? You have to know these transactions. You have to be involved in them. And then you also have to know who the sources are that are out there that can give you information on trade values and all that. And not to be trite, but the business is worth what someone's willing to pay for it, right? And so you can do a discounted cash flow analysis and you can go to an appraiser who can do a bunch of theoretical analysis on it. But ultimately, the business is going to really be worth what the counterparty is willing to pay in terms of the enterprise value of that business. So we look at those valuations in a variety of ways. We use comparative transactional analysis. We talk to other people in the business, and then we create a range based on the fundamentals of the business. So we feel as though when someone says, hey, I'm thinking about selling, the first step is to say, well, that's the first question really is going to be, what's it worth? And we're going to tell them, look, today, based on what you've you know, you've been able to do your performance over the last few years, this is where we see the value. 
However, if we extend that out and we start to say you're in a growth trajectory or you have certain fundamentals with your business, like you have a certain census or you have certain amount of full-time employees, you have certain ratings in the market, accreditations, all these factors can start to put together a range that is somewhere on the lower end of a, a scale and a higher end of the scale. And one last point on that is to say that even though we can put a range together, we're still very successful. And this has been our experience over the last few years is that there's still someone out there that might even pay more, which we call the outlier bid. And that is the person who has the exact synergy with your business. They're having the conversation that we're having on valuation, but on the other side of the table. And they're saying, this is exactly what we're looking for. And because of that, we're willing to pay 20 to 40% more than the next guy. So we still see that in the market. You know, I think that that answers the question of what should they do next when they have that first feeling is get in touch with an advisor, have that conversation. And then if you don't like what you hear in terms of the valuation or what your expectations are, then say, okay, what do I need to do? Is the advisor on the other end of the phone capable of giving me guidance on what I could do to improve that value and ultimately give them a sense of what your timeline might be. So it might be two years from now, but you want to know, we love those conversations because for us, this is a relationship business. It's a long long game. It's a long game. Completely. And we get paid well. We do a lot of work, but for us, it's so much more fulfilling when you've had this relationship that in some cases could be years long and you get them to that successful place and they look over and they go, you know, Andre, we would have never gotten here if it wasn't for you. And, you know, for us being a younger group of guys in this firm, for us, the reputation and building that kind of advocation in the market, that's very important to us. Yeah. Awesome. I'm looking at your website, mahealthadvisors.com under the successful transactions tab. There's a few million dollar, $2 million exits and and practices listed. And then it kind of ranges up into the teens and up into the twenties, and then even a $52 million deal, a $60 million deal. So what have you seen with commonalities, either similarities or differences? If a practice owner is either hesitant to reach out to you guys because they're like, oh, this firm does $17 $17 million deals and, and $60 million deals, maybe they're you know too big for me. But then you also show a $2.4 million ABA therapy agency exit that regional platform buyer acquired. What have you seen that maybe there's more commonalities, more similarities than differences when you look at smaller $1 or $2 million deals versus the $50 or $60 million deal? Well, Dave, you and I both know that it's difficult to run a successful business no matter the size of it. Right. And from that standpoint, when we engage with someone who feels like, oh, well, you might be out of my league, we we have a conversation about it. You know, and we say, you know, we want to judge the deal as much on the quality of the client as we do on the quality of the business and and the potential transaction. Because it's really, there's going to be moments in this process where it gets very difficult. And if we're on a team, then it's so much better and it's it's so much more fulfilling to get through the process. So there has to be certain thresholds, obviously. Like we, we just can't do a transaction that's too small 
because there's costs and there's time and it would require too much of a success fee relative to the proceeds on the deal. So yeah, we do have to have a, a bottom line in terms of what we represent. And if that's the case, then we also ask, be honest, like, what are your expectations around this? And if you want to sell now and you're not willing to, to wait a few more years and grow the business and potentially increase your potential valuation, then we have resources that they might be able to utilize for the time being, right? And you and I both know, in particular with, with physical therapy, there's a lot of shops out there that are smaller. And then a lot of them that are, and most of them probably where the principal, the owner is taking on clients and is working with patients themselves. So if they want a full exit and they don't want to be part of the future of the business, then they'll need to have other therapists in the clinic. But if they don't, then those are those are hard conversations to have, just to say, there's really not much here if you're not involved. So we have to figure this out. But Dave, for us, there's two things that are really important for us as for our overarching themes. One is, and the most important, is trust, right? So we need transparency and we need it as sooner rather than later because we need to know everything about this business and everything about the expectations around ownership. We're never going to use that information against anybody. We just want to make sure that we set up the goalposts you know, for where we're going. And we want to make sure that they understand and we're willing to provide them with references and all of the different you know, stories we have and experiences we have around deals. We're willing to, to say, look, get us involved, get us involved quick in terms of developing an exit strategy. But trust is very important. But the other part of it too, Dave, that's really important is solutions. Like we may not have the answer right now, but we better get that answer quickly and know how to get answers, right? You know, when I was growing up, you know, when prior to there being Google and, you know, we had Encyclopedia Britannica, right? And you may not remember this, you young, young guy, but I do, I do. I'm not that young. Come on, come on now. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) But, you know, it was like, hey, I don't know what that is. And instead of, you had to actually go into the encyclopedia and, and it was actually a little bit of work. Like, okay, I've got to navigate through this thing. And for us, it, you know, these are puzzles and you have to have solutions. And so somebody comes and says, my business is 200,000 of EBITDA. I've got two other therapists that work in here. And then we have a conversation. We say, well, you have to be honest with yourself. You know, what's the business worth if you're not involved in it? And then we have to look at the fundamentals. And are there, is there, other aspects or there are other asset bases in, in the business. But the point is that the that you can come to a solution. There's probably a counterparty out there for your business. We may not be the guys to represent you, but if we get to the point where we say, hey, it's not for us, well, we'll put you in front of a few other potential advisors who we've worked with over the years who will take that on because that's what they do every day. Right. So we're going to run through some, some topics. We're going to talk about macroeconomics. We're going to talk about the trends that you're seeing with with healthcare deals and private practice owners, we're going to talk about cost of capital. We did cover the lower middle market. So you were mentioning in the pre-interview, some of the larger deals. So like we were talking about your successful transactions, one or $2 million deals, larger deals in different verticals in healthcare. So regardless of what vertical someone is in that's listening, in terms of macroeconomics, if there's larger consolidation or larger deals happening in that vertical or in that niche of healthcare, and a practice owner is listening, how does that, or maybe it maybe doesn't, but how can it, or how does those, or how do those larger deals 
affect their practice? So, so just to clarify the question, Dave, so if, if there's a, a larger business, larger in terms of the lower middle market, and how would and that business is someone that's ready to sell now, ready to move forward, how does that transaction, how does that process unfold? If, if there if there's a, a larger national or regional buyer and they're either they're they're in a growth mode, they're buying up the right. 10, the 20 locations at a time, or even they're they're buying some of the individual practices. How does right. that affect the practice owner that's listening? Maybe it gives them opportunity because those buyers might come knocking on their door as well. Maybe that results in them having fear that if there's more consolidation going on in the market, then they're going to have a, a larger competitor and that competitor is gaining market share. Are these things that practice owners should even care about or they should just you know keep their heads down and continue to help their patients and help their communities and not really worry about any of the consolidations that's going on? So, well, it depends on where they are in terms of their, their selling their business, right? I mean, for us, it's a mantra that we, we say, focus on your business, we'll focus on the transaction, right? And we talk to them uh, through this. They'll come to us a, a lot, practice owners, and say, you know, I was thinking about doing this. How will it affect the deal? And we say, don't worry about that. The deal is not a deal until it closes, and between the point at which you're trying to make a change for your operations and the deal closes, we just say, if it's good for your operations, make it happen because deals fall apart all the time, right? So that's that's one mindset around this. The other mindset is, as there is consolidations going on in the market, is that it's a question of, is this the right time to sell because this is when I might get the most value for my business? So we don't ever operate with fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like that's just, that's not how we compel anyone to move forward. What we do though is, is lay out, look, there's a good chance that right now is the height of the market in terms of the valuations that we're seeing out there. Does that mean you should sell now? It all depends on where they are in terms of their personal lives and their personal portfolios. Do they want to sell the business to move on to something else? But what I find is that most operators really enjoy what they do and that we don't try to sell them on the idea that there's a greener grass on, on the other side of the fence, right? We just say to them, hey, this is where you are and this is where it is. But to answer the question more specifically, look, consolidations happen in segments all the time. And one of the things we've seen over the years has been a huge move towards financial buyers, private equity groups doing massive consolidations and coming into the lower middle market because there was more opportunity, right? There's more fragmentation, more businesses available in that market. And in healthcare, it's a great place to be, right? Because when it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's good, right? I mean, there's never really a, a scenario in which the healthcare industry isn't growing. Unfortunately, you know, there's more patients. The, the population isn't necessarily getting healthier. And as the aging demographics occur, we see more and more patients. And so in regards to a place to put investment dollars and look for return on invested capital, that's a great place to be. So those consolidations are, are out there. Where we've seen is more the scenario of late that you're talking about, where there's a larger uh, corporate, maybe has a regional or a nationwide presence. And they're coming in and saying, hey, we want to be in this geography. 
And the seller or the operator, the owner knows that this is happening. And I think that's a good moment just to say, let me just understand what my options are. And, and that would be a good opportunity to say, let me see what they're willing to buy a business for. And that's a good place to engage an advisor because then you can ask, you can get some of those answers to those questions. But you know, you have to be able to quantify what it is you want in the deal and define if this is the right time for that, regardless of what's going on in the environment. There's always opportunities out there. And you kind of touched on it, but what are you seeing in regards to healthcare MA trends and or is this a seller's market? I think you kind of touched on that. Others have come on here and said it's been a seller's market for a bit, or how long will that last? I'm throwing a, a couple of those questions at you. What are you currently seeing? What are your current stances? Even though things could change certainly at the drop of a dime if there's you know changes in the market, like always, what are you currently seeing with some of these trends? So I would say that it continues to be a seller's market, probably shifted a bit because you're getting more into the macroeconomic issues as the cost of capital goes up. So the, the cost to borrow money, that usually has an inverse relationship with valuations, right? So that would be more, that would be more in line with the idea of that valuations are going to go down. And maybe that will discourage sellers from getting in the market. But the reality is that there's a tremendous amount of inventory in the healthcare services business. So if we think about there's healthcare products, right? We represent and what you operate and what you represent is, is a healthcare services business, right? There is immense, touched on it earlier, immense fragmentation in that. And so... If the buyers that are out there know that it's difficult to get these deals done, and so they're willing to pay more to get these deals done, depending on the quality of the seller that comes to the market. So it's difficult to say. It's unlike real estate in that way, Dave. I think that's the the distinction, is that in real estate, economics might change, the macroeconomics might change the value of the, the real estate. Right. And, and, and it does in, in many cases. Uh, real estate's always been a hedge against inflation. So, in some ways, you can sort of say, well, it's, it's kind of always a seller's market, but we know the difference, right, between in real estate when it's a seller's and buyer's market. The MA world is a total different beast, right? I mean, there's so many reasons why, because first of all, the valuations, you can't just look it up on a site and say, hey, this is what it's worth relative to the comparative transactions in the, in the neighborhood, right? So, we have that heavy lift of defining where the value is for a seller's business but there are trem- there are there are still a tremendous amount of counterparties out there even though the debt costs a lot more to make happen because they need to uh, supplement their portfolios with these bolt-on businesses so they might not be fine looking for platforms they might not be looking for the principal business in the portfolio but they're looking for businesses to make it bigger right so a financial firm is going to say, I want to make this portfolio bigger, and that's how I'm going to increase my investment, right? I'm going to get a return on that investment. The strategic company is going to come in and say, I need to increase my market share. So for them, revenue, patient counts, and particularly right now, what matters most is personnel. We have a huge shortage 
of healthcare professionals, but with a growing market. So a lot of the corporate businesses or what we term strategic buyers will come in and say, I want to buy that business. And really, it's a recruiting tool. It's a, it's a way of onboarding more personnel. And so how much are those personnel worth? Quite a bit because of the supply-demand curve. I mean, there's, there's, just, there's less of them, and these larger businesses demand more of them. So that's, uh, that, you know, introducing some concepts there, Dave, but I, I think in general, it's always in healthcare, our opinion is it can always be lucrative. If you have a good business and you're willing to disclose every aspect of that business to a buyer, you're going to do well. Excellent. Let me just recap a few things. So right now, uh, late February of 2023, we've had over the past year or so, we've had increasing interest rates. And with that, regardless of whether it's a smaller buyer like us, if it's a regional buyer or a a private equity-backed buyer, there's a cost of capital regardless, whether it comes out of my bank account or some, you know, it's financed with an SBA loan, commercial debt, if it's... uh, PE firms will raise debt and they'll put debt on the business as well. So there's always a cost of capital. Increasing interest rates would result in a higher cost of capital, correct? Correct. So with a higher cost of capital, wouldn't the valuations be lower? The offers in general. Yes. So it's it's that inverse relation. It's a teeter tot, right? And and the idea, and it's it's why you utilize interest rates to try to curb inflation, right? It's usually what happens. It's not happening right now. It will happen, but the equities markets will correct themselves when you see an increase in interest rates because then as a consumer or as a retail investor, I can go and just put my money into a more, a safer investment and get whatever, 5%, 6%, 7% return where the cost of capital for many years, I completely disagreed with this, but this is what this was the case. It was zero. I mean, for the banks and for us as as lender, as borrowers to the lenders, we were paying very, very low amounts. So what happens? You you overpay. You're willing to overpay, right? So yeah, so all that stuff corrects itself out. That happens. It's the same thing with, with M&A. The difference is that when you're buying an operating business, you should be on the beneficiary side of the inflation. So you should be benefiting from inflation. Now, most of the payers that we work with in you know, our federal payer, Medicare, for instance, right? That's the, it's the largest payer that we deal with. But we're dealing with, but we do deal with a lot of private insurance. We do deal with a lot of individual state payers, all that. But the federal payers, they also have inflation. Like they pay more as years go by, not enough based on where we're, where, where inflation is now. But the point is that you should be making more dollars in an inflationary market as well if you're running a business. So that's sort of the difference is that you're buying these operations. And yes, it might cost more to buy the operation, but the business should be worth more as well. So that that teeter tot sort of gets itself to be level to some point. Now, all of this is, is, is theoretical in terms of the valuation because it has to do with systemic issues. Again, the real issue is fundamentally, does this business add to the business that's coming in to buy them? 
and how does it add there? And if it's accretive and it adds that much value, we are in the middle of that and we're negotiating that going, okay, well, this is what this business means to you. We want to be paid for that. And if that means paying us on future value, if that means paying us on metrics that are within the business that aren't traditionally valued, we'll take that step and we'll, we'll increase it to meet sort of the standard of what, a, of what an enterprise value should be for the seller. Awesome. Really appreciate you clarifying and, and breaking that down because it can be a little complex, but at the same time, so if there's a higher cost of capital, just to finalize it, if there's a higher cost of capital, but it's a seller's market, you would, you would assume, or maybe one would assume that if there's a higher cost of capital, the valuations might be lower or the offers will be lower. And then therefore, if there's a higher cost of capital, there are also maybe less buyers aggressively going out to market looking for acquisitions, looking for partnerships. So if there's a higher cost of capital, there might be less buyers in the market, unless some of the buyers that are currently buying, unless they're going to be continually aggressive regardless. And it goes back to what you just said, which is if they have a large platform company, if they're going to do a tuck-in or, or a bolt-on acquisition, that now they're, the sum of all those parts is, is now worth more, more than the, the drag of the cost of capital. Yeah. And Dave, if you're a buyer and you don't have to lever the deal, if you don't have to go out and borrow money, right? Most deals, you know, the LBOs back in the day were like 80% loan to value, right? We don't see that anymore. I mean, we were, you know, sometimes we'll see a deal where there's, you know, there's a 50% or they'll use it as a multiple on the EBITDA, right? They'll go like two and a half times the EBITDA, which we're kind of max out on the leverage. So we don't see like hyper leverage deals as much anymore, especially in the lower middle market. I don't think the underwriters are, you know, have an appetite for that in any market. But you have buyers out there that don't need any leverage, right? If you're a large corporation and you have free cash flow in the firm that can be utilized to acquire these businesses, then the cost of capital, you know, and, and what's happening in the larger markets doesn't affect you that much. But if it does, if you're a financial buyer and, and you're going to put 30% on there, then yeah, you're going to have more interest payments. But hopefully the business you're buying, which we don't see private equity firms making mistakes here. They spend a lot of time scrutinizing, due diligence. The timelines on these deals take quite a while because they want to make sure that they're not missing anything. But if they have their sights on a business, it's probably because that business is going to add a lot of value. To what they're currently doing. And so, yeah, maybe there's a couple hundred basis points more in, in interest payments, but they're willing to continue to pay what the multiple market multiple might have been historically just to get the deal done. Awesome. I want to switch back over to you and your firm being a facilitator between these practice owners, these sellers, and buyers like us, buyers in the market, and you guys trying to find the right buyer. So obviously, uh, anonymously, without disclosing any information, but like, what are some unique situations, unique dynamics where you've helped facilitate these practice owners on the sell side, finding buyers, any success stories, any uh, anonymous anecdotes that we can you know, learn from and, and get some insight from? You know, I, I got you know, a number of clients who they all think that I'm blowing smoke when I tell them, you know, that... They're one of my best clients. And it's true. It's like when there's a when a deal closes, it's funny because there's so many pieces that have to come together 
really to, to make it happen. What we say in the lower middle market is it's double the work and half the fee because, you know, you're sort of the deals aren't as large, but and you're not in a boardroom with 50 other guys making it happen. It's really you and the and the client. You know, maybe there's someone on your team that's that's supporting you and maybe the client has a partner, but it, you're in the trenches with these guys. And I would say, you know, some of the, you know, the things that end up happening is you develop a relationship. And I would say we've had situations where we've had a client that, you know, admitted things to us that, you know, we were, we had to, that we didn't know about, you know, going to the very personal things that happen. And we end up sort of taking on a, a psychologist role as well in that. And, you know, we just listen because we want to be, we want to just be helpful to these, to these folks. Uh, story-wise, though, I, I would say we've had some situations where the other side of it has happened, where, you know, sometimes you don't develop that you try to do your best to be trustworthy and to do everything you can to make sure that you develop the relationship. But sometimes the clients don't tell you things. And those are the worst. Those are the sometimes the funniest stories, but they're the worst because you'll show up to a call and someone will say, for instance, well, tell us a little bit about this other business. And then, you know, it turns out that the other business owner is the person's wife. And it's like, well, didn't you think you should have shared that with me after the 40 or, you know, 100 hours that we spent together? And, and a lot of folks get into these scenarios where they just, I think that the, that's where we are as a society. We're very slow to trust and especially slow to trust people in the financial world. And so, I mean, if I was going to, to give, you know, stories that sort of overlay the deals that we do and, and specifics, I would just say that all the deals in which we had trust and full transparency with our clients, I'd say 100% of those deals have closed, 100%. And I would say that the percentage is significantly lower for those who are always tight to the best and always guarded about information, as if the buyer isn't going to find that out, right? There's been things where we, okay, there's no liability. There's no legal liability. There's no legal liability. And then the, the, the buyer will show up with a background check and be like, hey, what's up with this uh, lawsuit that's in place? Or what's up with this, um, you know, it looks like this person's, you know, running a pharmacy and they've got a substance abuse problem. Uh, you know, I didn't know anything about that, right? It, you don't want to be in that scenario when you're representing people. So, but yeah, but, but Dave, and we've done, we've done so many different deals and different segments. We do transactions in home health and hospice. We do transactions in pharmacy modalities. We do treatment, behavioral health, autism. ABA, we do physician practices. We've worked with physical therapists in the past. And I would say that for us, the most important aspect of all those deals has always been how we can get all the information, even the, the worst parts about your business, get all that information as soon as possible so that we can go out there and represent you accurately and, and adequately in the market. I have a... Uh... I'll give an anonymous little quick story interacting and speaking with or previously with a practice owner. And we were looking, I was, you know, we were doing some due diligence, looking at uh, all their staff members, Googling, just, just, just traditional due diligence type stuff. I won't say any names. I won't say any locations, 
we found out that there was a lawsuit involved with a physical therapist that was currently employed in, we'll call it practice B, currently employed in practice B. And we were looking to potentially partner or acquire practice B. We found out this physical therapist a couple of years ago was working at another place. We'll call that practice A. And the physical therapist had on accident dislocated a patient's hip. So they previously had a hip replacement. And, you know, if you internally rotate it a certain way or aggressively or whatever, we can get into, you know, the, uh, well, the accident. I don't, I don't know the whole story, but online you can, you can make a free account on these legal websites. And I got all the documents of all of the litigation, including pictures from the spouse of the patient when it first happened. And that's one thing that like, so we have to do our own due diligence. And that was a physical therapist that worked at practice A that we have no, we don't talk to that practice owner. We have no idea we're that's unrelated, but with practice B, we were, we're looking to partner or acquire that practice and the practice owner there, we're still in the situation of, they haven't mentioned it. Maybe they have no idea. We don't know. So that, it's like kind of like, who knows? And um, we'll have to kind of evaluate it, but that kind of goes back to like, you know, we have trust <laughs> with our team. We have trust with the seller that we're speaking with, but that seller at a practice B may have no idea about it. Yeah. But they but they might know about it. But they might and, know about and, it. Yeah. And they haven't told us. I had to find it out. And look, those are so we talked about previous to this, uh, the I, one of the concepts that you had laid out in one of your videos about about what should you take, like what should you take personally, right? And and this is where we have to take these very qualitative aspects of the of the personal dynamics between us and the client, between the client and the buyer, between us and the buyer, right? All these things have to kind of come together. And what we really have to do, one of our jobs is to say, all right, we got all these qualitative things. How do we quantify them? How do we make it so that when the buyer tells us something, we can rank their level of follow through based on what they actually deliver? So We've had, oh, I mean, talk about buyer, you know, just horror stories, right? Where the buyer will say, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're going to give you an offer of, uh, let, let's just say, we're going to give you an offer of $20 million, right? And that's what, and I have a call with them. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, playing it nonchalant, like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that sounds good, right? And, and like the 20 million is like maybe like four times higher than everyone, you know, anyone else, right? And then they show up and, and the problem is like, what do you do? Like, do I tell my client that it's verbal, but do I tell the client that? And what I've realized is that sometimes I just have to wait and see before I give information. If it's written, it's got to go to the client right away. Yeah. If but it's, if, it's if it's verbal, a, term, a term sheet or non-binding LOI. Got to go to the client right away. That's not anything I can, I can put in my back pocket. But when somebody tells me something, it just sounds totally out of left field. I've just learned just wait and see. And then you'll get the offer and it's like 5 million. Like what happened? To the, well, you know, we went back and we, you know, we repenciled it. I'm like, repenciled it. I mean, what, what, like a number 10 pencil? Like, what is it? Like one of those clown pencils? Like, what do you think? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's the situation is, is you have to be able to take, say to some, okay, well, that's strike one, man. I mean, like when you tell me something and you don't do it, I need to be the arbiter of if you somebody that can be trusted. And if I get to the point where I can quantitatively say this, we cannot trust this counterparty, 
I don't care how good that offer is. We're not going to do that deal. We're just not going to do it because it won't happen. I just know now that you have to judge people on their actions and, and, and you have to see how these things break out because as you know, we don't have earnest money here. We don't have deposits. We work in a non-binding environment for the majority of, for the majority of this deal. I mean, essentially, you know, if the deal takes eight months, seven months of that will be in a non-binding situation, right? Because you'll be in an LOI where either party can pretty much back out. So you better be able to trust these people because the worst thing is that they come in the 11th hour and go, ah, you know, I know we said this, but it's really going to be this. And then what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, you can blink and, you know, and, and take it, but you know, that's sort of on us. Like, wait, how could you do that to us? And if we're not the ones that are anticipating that, then, you know, then we're just not doing the right, we're not doing right by our clients in terms of representation. Right. Awesome. I think that's a perfect place to pause for now. Definitely got to have you back for more topics. What's a good place for the audience to reach out to you, Andre, whether it's LinkedIn, website, email address, what's a good place for the audience to contact you or your firm if they want to learn more? So we have a, a good presence on the web. Our website, mahealthcareadvisors.com. Great place to go. And, and I would encourage anyone that has an interest in what we talked about today in the process and how valuations are conducted. We have a tremendous amount of video content in there as well, Dave. And so I would encourage anyone to go in there and, and flip through it. As far as LinkedIn goes, you can find MA Healthcare Advisors on there. You can find my LinkedIn page as well. We post a lot of our information on there uh, as well. And, and you know, if you want to be part of our mailing list, there's ways to register for that. And yeah, we're definitely in the market. And you know, if, I would ask if if anyone, Dave, like you have, you know contact us if you have any questions. We're pretty easygoing guys. I mean, when it comes to getting deals done, we're, we're aggressive. But when it comes to having a conversation, we love doing that. And we will happy to talk about, talk about it with anyone. Excellent. Andre, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. If you're listening to this, watching this, if you find this valuable, insightful, click subscribe and like this episode or this video on YouTube. It'll help the podcast and the show surface for others like you that are entrepreneurial minded, that are in healthcare, physical therapist, physician, Cairo, you name it. We would appreciate that. Share the episode out with a colleague or a friend, and we'll catch you next time here on the Dave Kittle Show. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.